You've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Already, already the bizarre comments are popping up in response to our video yesterday where we exposed some absolutely ridiculous positions espoused by Rick Wiles of True News. And of course, I've copied him and said, let's have a formal discussion. Oh, and someone is asking me, are you a Kabbalist, Zionist Jew? They're asking me, a Kabbalist, a Kabbalist, ooh. If so, you are not a Christian follower of Yeshua, the true Messiah. Where are these people getting this nonsense from? But there's nothing new under the sun, friends. Jew hatred is old. Jew hatred is current. Jew hatred is virtually universal. And it is utterly irrational. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. It's Friday, which means you've got questions. We've got answers. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. A shout-out to Stu Epperson, who leads and owns and runs and founded the Truth Radio Network. It's our joy to be on the Every Truth Station around the country five days a week. As Associate Dave, great to meet you today. Uh, Stu's the one that got the vision to put me on radio years back. Uh, in fact, I had journaled the day I was doing an interview with him that he was going to ask me to go on radio. Here we are, more than 10 years later, a blessed partnership. 866 Three, four, truth. Let's go straight to the phones, starting with Jesus in Arizona. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, I just have two quick questions, if it's all right. I know you're pressed in time. Uh, it's just uh, some two Jewish objections uh, to Jesus I've heard. And I, well, yeah. Uh, so I just want to ask, um, is because um, I heard this Jewish objection that says that uh, that John the Baptist wasn't Elijah, and they use John one twenty one uh, that says that you know John said that he wasn't Elijah, which contradicts uh, Malachi three twenty three and Matthew seventeen that says that uh, Elijah was John. Right. So, first yeah. First, first thing is there's no contradiction with any of those passages, and again, you have to ask yourself, would the early editors or the early copyists or those accepting the various documents of the new Testament as, as being inspired and accurate, would they put together in the same collection statements that they knew were blatantly false? One that said, Jesus lives in Arizona. And the other that says, Jesus has never been to Arizona. And we put them side by side. That would not be logical. So you have to ask, okay, what are the texts saying? John was not literally Elijah, and he says that in John, the first chapter. He was not literally Elijah reincarnate. Jesus explains that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah as a forerunner, preparing the way of the Lord. But there are two comings. There's the first coming and the second coming. And uh, we don't know how the Malachi passage will ultimately be fulfilled. In other words, we don't know if there will be uh, a literal Elijah or an Elijah company or something like that. 
So the scriptures will be fulfilled. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah in an Elijah-like role preparing the way of the Lord, but he was not literally Elijah. And there was a first coming for redemption and a second coming with wrath and judgment. So we haven't gotten to the second coming yet. So everything on schedule, nothing out of order, nothing contradictory. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, and something that came to my mind was that probably uh, Elijah might come like at the second uh, coming of Christ, I guess. Uh, or that's another yeah, the, qu- the question is, is there going to be a literal Elijah, someone else in the spirit and power of Elijah, or a, a group of believers or the people of God as a whole who become an Elijah type of company? Uh, we shall see. But everything oh, okay. remains on schedule. Yeah, other question real quick. And my second one was about the atonement nature of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And yeah. I guess, because I, I got confused when I read uh, Hebrews 10.4 that says that that the sacrificial system d- doesn't um, uh, pardon sins, I think. Uh, I don't know how I understand that, but I, I feel like it might come be at odds with your argument uh, about uh, Jewish objections to Jesus, where it says that, uh, where they, they claim that, you know, you don't need a, bla- a blood sacrificial system to atone. Uh, and I was wondering if that was an odds with that, and and if I could just quickly uh, go over that, uh, like if for example, like how how does the theological nature of the atonement system, how did that work? Like, uh, was there actual uh, repentance, or did it have to tie into the sacrifice of Jesus? Like, uh, or like for example, like Abraham before they had the temple. Yeah. Uh, so right. So 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 hang on. Hey, let, let me just jump in because you got about four or five different questions there uh, that I can't get into all of. In short, the sacrificial system pointed the way to substitution, life for life, the innocent for the guilty. There were different sacrifices that had different functions, some for cleansing, uh, some for forgiveness. They had some for consecration. Uh, All of them that had to do with forgiveness to be efficacious had to be tied in with repentance. God never responds just to dead works any more than Jesus' death on the cross secures the salvation of a non-repentant person. No, there must be repentance and turning to the Lord. That's part of our salvation. That being said, what Hebrews is emphasizing is that they could not ultimately cleanse the conscience. They did bring about a purification, and ultimately it came through faith, but they could not ultimately do what the cross did. So rather than us not needing blood atonement, the blood blood sacrifices point to the essential need for blood atonement but we recognize that we would not see the fullness of that, the true cleansing and eternal redemption until we got to the cross. So the sacrifices had a certain function in their day and then pointed forward to the greater sacrifice of the Messiah that would come, the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Hope that is helpful, sir. Uh, And obviously you got a lot of questions, but as you know, our phone lines are jammed. We want to get to as many as possible. Thanks for asking. Uh, let's go to Virginia Clifton. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Hey, uh, my my question was uh, about graven images. Um, would you consider uh, a fishing lure a graven image, or would a graven image be considered uh, something uh, more scriptural, like the golden calf, or would it just be anything that's sculptural? Right, so so yeah, it's an interesting question with fishing lure and and Clifton. Let me commend you. Uh, I've been asked many thousands of questions for many years now, but this is the first time I've ever been asked this particular question. So, good, <laughs> good job. Okay, so the, a, as silly as it sounds, you're saying if a fishing lure is graven to look like any particular thing, 
is that a graven image and was that forbidden in ancient Israel? No, no, what, what's forbidden is idolatry. In other words, the concern was, was not that a child, uh, you know, looking at an animal, you know, maybe a, a, a turtle, and now they make a little mound of mud and they, you know, play with it so that it looks like a turtle. That wasn't the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the issue okay. was not, you know, someone taking a few sticks and putting them together to, to look like a person. The issue was worshiping these images, thinking that they had some deity attached to them, that they were somehow uh, images or representations of the one God or some other so-called deity. And then the people worshiping that bowing down to it, that's, that's the prohibition. It's a prohibition against idolatry and therefore against making idols. It's not to say that if you're out to catch fish and somehow the fishing lure, you know, was made to look like something that attracted a fish that, that that would be wrong. That's absolutely not the issue. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are, you are very welcome. And, and friends, if you don't believe me, just read Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, where these prohibitions are laid out so plainly. Read Deuteronomy 4, where these prohibitions are laid out so plainly. They have to do with representations of the deity. 866-348-7884. Let's go to Eric in Boston. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was... I listened to you talk about um, Isaiah 52, um, 13, and, and you were talking about how this language of the servant here being um, ex- highly exalted and lifted up, um, that that's also applied to God in Isaiah, and uh, like Isaiah chapter 6 and other passages. And I brought this up with a, with a Jewish friend, so I was uh, going over this, these texts with him, and he pointed me over to Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verse 14, and it says the high mountains were all hills and lifted up. And I was just kind of curious if you could confirm if that's the same sort of language in the Hebrew and how that would sort of affect the point that you were making, because uh, I know you weren't saying that just because it uses those words of God and the servant that it's an identification, but, um, well, maybe could you just uh, could you just touch on that, actually? Uh, and, uh, sure and then thing. he also said, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, go ahead. You can finish that. Okay, yeah. And then he also said, um, well, you know, just because, you know, David is a king and God is a king doesn't mean David is God. So he's kind of, that's a different sort of argument, but that was another response he had. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. of course, that's right. So the point is not to say in Isaiah 52, 13, in the Hebrew, that those words that speak of the servant being lifted up, highly exalted, etc., that those words mean that the servant must be deity. That's not the argument that we'd be making. But to speak of one being high and lifted up, that the language elsewhere in Isaiah is used, as you mentioned, Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and other passages that say that the Lord alone will be high and lifted up on that day. So uh, the point was we're, we're paralleling how these words are used several other times speaking of the Lord in Isaiah, and here they are speaking of the servant to, to show how highly exalted he is. In fact, to have the first two verbs used, those are used elsewhere, and then to have the third one and, and exceedingly high, all those three together, to my knowledge, are not used of the Lord in, in the book of Isaiah. So in other words, it's, it's even 
a higher description of, of exaltation. So yes, elsewhere in Isaiah, the language is used in a couple of other places. As you mentioned, Isaiah, the second chapter, a counter-missionary colleague uh, pointed that out in, in his attempt to rebut some of what I had written to say, well, look, you know, you've got mountains and hills high and lifted up, etc. But you don't have a human being spoken of in those same terms. You don't have a human being who is spoken of who will be exalted in that measure the way the Lord is. So it remains unique, and it's striking that a widely quoted Midrash, so a homiletical interpretation of this that's found in Midrash Tankuma, well-known in Jewish tradition, says, based on that text, that the servant will be more highly exalted than Abraham, than Moses, and then even than the ministering angels. So you're talking about very high exaltation. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today. 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. You've got questions. We've got answers. My great and profound joy to be with you. Hey, friends, make sure you check out my latest articles, our latest videos, all at AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. And if we've been a blessing and helped you join our support team, the more you help us, the more you can amplify my voice. If we've been a blessing to help us bless and reach others. So uh, Eric in Boston, just to sum up, the exaltation spoken of the servant in Isaiah 52, 13 is unique in the entire book and most closely parallels language used to speak of God's exaltation. We can look at a passage like Isaiah 57, 15 as well. It does not mean that that proves that the Messiah is God, but rather how highly exalted the Messiah will be in ways that parallel divine exaltation. All right, thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Joel in California. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hi, Dr. Brown. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you. Awesome. Um, so I, I'm teaching on uh, Jesus fulfilling the, uh, the feasts, and mm-hmm. so I'm looking at Passover, um, and... I'm coming up with a little confusion here because in Matthew and Luke and Mark, it seems like he is having the Passover meal with the apostles, but then in John, it seems like Passover isn't taking place until he's being crucified on the cross. Now, so does this have something to do with that? And that meal that they had, it didn't seem like they had a lamb, which were they not doing that at the time, eating the lamb? No, no, cer- so, certainly they would have been, right, certainly they would have been um, uh, eating the lamb. So there is a debate among New Testament scholars in terms of exactly how to work this out, but we normally understand <clears throat> that the Passover meal that's spoken of when Jesus says in Luke 22, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer, that he is speaking about the Passover meal on the opening night and it just because it doesn't reference eating a lamb doesn't really reference eating any food at all does it it just it just references the 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 bread and the wine 
So uh, <clears throat> there's no mention of what else was eaten, but we know it was an actual meal. And if that was the meal that took place that night, then Jesus is betrayed later that night, crucified that day. So that would be the first day of Passover on which he was crucified. That would ultimately be what comes out. Now, does John say it was the day for the slaughtering of the lambs? And that's where there's a debate among New Testament scholars. But because the, the meal is spoken of the way it is, because his death coincides with Passover so clearly, that I would just look for ways where I could read John's gospel that uh, can, can we read it in a way that's in harmony with that? I, I believe the answer is yes. And the best thing to, to do is look at major commentaries, in particular on the Gospel of John, that work these kinds of things out, Craig Keener's commentary and, and others uh, on the Gospel of John, uh, and to see how these things can fit together or look for a chronology of the Gospels. But yeah, again, as I understand it, they ate the Passover meal, the Seder, uh, whatever extent it existed at that point, and we know further traditions have been added over the centuries, but they ate that together. So that's Passover Eve, uh, again, because in Judaism, the day starts in the evening, and then right. later that day, he's crucified. So he's crucified on the first day of Passover uh, after they had their meal some hours earlier. That's the best way to understand, it, especially if you're teaching on those things in terms of the symbolism. So, I, yeah, go ahead. So for the symbolism, is it safe to say that Jesus is crucified on Passover, and then he's in the grave for the uh, first day of unleavened bread, and then he is risen on first fruits, which yes, seems he's... to keep in line with things that they say later on in the in the New Testament writers calling him our first fruits, right? Like First Corinthians fourteen, born among the dead. right? First Corinthians fifteen twice uses the Greek term that the Septuagint uses for first fruits, right? First fruits from the dead in terms of resurrection. Absolutely. That's how I read it. And I, I do agree with what would have been the Sadducean dating or the Karaite dating that it was fixed on a Sunday, that it was the first day after the Sabbath of the Passover. That's when first fruits was. So yeah, that's exactly the right way to read it. And then the spirit comes at Pentecost Shavuot. Uh, and there's Jewish tradition that says that's when the law was given on Mount Sinai. That's, that's harder to prove, but it would be a great parallel uh, three, th you know, God comes with thunder and with fire uh, then with tongues of fire uh, as a result of the of the law being given on Sinai because of God's perfection highlighting human sin. Uh, 3,000 Israelites die. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, God's grace is poured out, 3,000 Israelites are saved. So the parallels are great there. Then we have that stretch with nothing happening. And then what comes next, the trumpet blast. So, uh, for example, Matthew 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and, and Revelation, the 11th chapter, and Zechariah 9, the the trumpet blast, it speaks of his return. So that's Feast of Trumpets leading to atonement for Israel. So Zechariah 12, they looked him who they pierced. Zechariah 13, national atonement. Mm -hmm. Zechariah 14, tabernacles, the nations going into Jerusalem. So, yeah, that's how those things unfold. The, the, fall, the spring feast having to do with the first coming and the fall feast having to do with the second coming. So the feasts have their own meaning in their own day. They're also looking forward to something. Hey, Joel. Much appreciation for your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Matthew in Kernersville, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask you about your opinion on uh, dichotomy and trichotomy and whether uh, the soul and the spirit are separate or the same. 
<laughs> yes, sir. Yes. So for those who are not familiar with this, and a uh, good job on putting these words up to check the spelling accuracy of our of our call screener. He's always scrambling with with calls on Friday. So I love it when you give him terms like trichotomy and dichotomy. Uh, so uh, a dichotomous view, di like divide, di having to do with two. So dichotomous view divides human being into two parts: the inner being and the outer being. Uh, soul dash uh, spirit being the inner being and body being the outer being. Trichotomous divides us into three parts, like a tricycle divides us into three parts, body, soul, spirit. We know that in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul references, <coughs> excuse me, in a prayer for our sanctification, that God would sanctify spirit, soul, and body. We know that in Hebrews 4.12, that, that the word of God divides even between joints and marrow and soul and spirit, which would seem to point to something separate there. Now, the Hebrew words nefesh, ruach, another word, neshama, uh, can be used in certain ways. The Greek pneuma, suke, can be used in ways that are parallel, but maybe at times more precise in definition. So are we basing this on Old Testament terminology, New Testament terminology, when does soul just mean the person as a whole? You know, 3,000 souls were saved that day, meaning people. There, there are a ton of questions. Here's how I look at it. Fundamentally, we are dichotomous in that we are physical beings and spiritual beings. Fundamentally. However, to rightly understand how we operate and function, I believe it's good to make the spirit-soul-body distinction. For example... When we were born again, it is our spirit, our innermost being that is born again, and that goes from death to life, from condemnation to justification. Our minds, that's the soulish part of us, not just that our minds work through our physical brains, but our minds, it's our emotions and conscience and things like that. That must be renewed, and then our body must be disciplined. So many times we confuse emotion with the voice of the Spirit. We confuse feelings with the leading of the Spirit. And to the extent we can isolate and understand, this is my, my Spirit, and I'm going to be led by God's Spirit in my Spirit, and God's Word dwells in my Spirit, I'll renew my mind accordingly, it will save us from a lot of error. So again, to me, this is diagnostic. Let's understand the difference between spirit and soul in precise New Testament terms. There's a Greek term, sukakos, soulish, that can have a, a negative connotation because of its uh, lack of true spirituality. And I think if we can understand ourselves as trichotomous for the purposes of recognizing the difference between soul and spirit, uh, you know, for example, many people who claim to be gay Christians, they're, they're practicing homosexuals and, they're, and they say they're following Jesus, I would say they're deeply confused in, in, in soul-spirit issues, that their emotions, their desires, their love for someone else, their, their, their intense wanting this to be acceptable in God's sight, they confuse that with the witness of the Spirit. And they say, look, I feel sure, I feel right, whereas they're just projecting their own emotions and feelings. So in simplicity, we are dichotomous in that when we, when we die— our inner being goes to be with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. But functionally, 
to the extent we can understand ourselves as being trichotomous, it's very, very helpful to distinguish between soul and spirit, to, to understand how these things work and to understand how, for example, you can put on sad music, oh, you're crying, it, 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 it affects your soul, your emotions a, a certain way, but it, it doesn't affect truth and reality. And that's where your spirit being needs to be in harmony with God and recognize the difference between emotions and response to truth. So I, I hope that's helpful to you. Hope I didn't give you too much information. And again, key texts that support trichotomy, Hebrews 4.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. But again, functionally, that's what I'm looking at. Let's understand how we walk before the Lord. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Friday means you've got questions, we've got answers. 866-348-7884. We go straight to the phones in Alaska. Dan, welcome to The Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. So glad to get to ask you this question. I've been waiting. Uh, this ties into your uh, Dr. Tuggy debate, which was good timing because I've recently been interact- interacting with a cousin who adheres to that viewpoint. Mm. And uh, my question is, they they say that Christ was basically a glorified man, mm-hmm. yet they recognize him as a Messiah. And my question is, could a man... A, actually even be able to accomplish what Christ did, um, I would say no for a couple of reasons. One, if he were just a sacrifice for sin, then maybe, you know, like the Mormons say Christ died for our sins, but he didn't uh, justify us or redeem us to our, our Father. But obviously, it wasn't just a sacrifice for sin. We were justified through him and completely reconciled to God our father through him. So, and then yeah, so there's, there's no way under the sun that a human Jesus, no matter how glorified could have fulfilled what God's called him to do. The first thing is we have numerous times where he appears in the Hebrew Bible, where he appears in the old Testament, clearly the son of God appearing. It's, it's the only logical explanation for the text since no one has ever seen the father. And uh, because of that, uh, if, if you say he was just a man who came into existence when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, Miriam, so you have to deny all of, of that. And of course you have to deny all the texts that speak of his preexistence, but putting, putting that aside, the only way that he could truly pay for all of our sins was if he had divine nature, no, no matter how good a person he may have been no matter how righteous a person he may have been, no matter how perfect a person he would have been, he'd still be limited as a human being. Uh, To pay for the sins of the entire world and to satisfy God's justice required someone greater than man. And uh, uh, not only that, Jesus says that that he has destroyed this temple. He says, I will raise it up. So you you don't raise yourself up if you're just a human being. There, There has to be divine nature there. 
you know, one thing that, that Dr. Tuggy and his folks really tried to go after me about in the debate was, well, did God die? And, and I said, look, death has to do with physical realm. In other words, yeah, Jesus, the son of God, fully experienced death. He, he died. But what does that mean? It means that, that his blood was drained out and his, and his body stopped working and he ceased breathing. That was it. The spirit lives on. And that's why Jesus said that you destroy the temple. I'll, I'll raise it up. Obviously, he lives on. So in that sense, no, God doesn't die. Of course not. But the point is. Right, I was John amazed 3, that he couldn't seem to grasp that. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they just believe in what you call a soul sleep anyway, that, that a human spirit does not go on living after death. It's in a sleep state until the resurrection. But the, the point is, even as I pressed before the debate, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. How much love is it? What kind of an expression of divine love if, if God gave a perfect man to die for us? And that was it. Yeah, I thought that was a really good, really good point. Yeah, that so, I of. yeah so uh, on many different fronts, the ongoing yeah. ministry of, of Jesus in heaven on our behalf, et cetera, et cetera, well, for, for him to be the, well, the substitute for that, the sins of the whole world, no, it couldn't happen if he was just a mere mortal, even exactly. a glorified moral. Yeah. The thing that, like, in Hebrews, to me, it's very clear that the new covenant is from God to man, not between God and man. It's the covenant of grace. And so, and it says, you know, like the, the testator requires the death of the will giver for it to be enacted. So if it's a, it's a covenant from God to man, how could a man enact that covenant? Yeah, that's a great point. One I didn't bring up, but sure, uh, that, that would presuppose the deity of the Messiah and that his death makes the uh, uh, affects the, the covenant that, that makes it effectual. Yeah, great point, Stan. And look, with folks like this, you just you, you plant seeds, you speak the truth, and you just pray that, that God would open their hearts and I, minds. I have w- one quick related question that um, I don't really know people in this um, sect, but I was wondering, you probably are much more familiar with it. What kind of uh, fruit do you see from that church? Um, I know, like, United Pentecostals, which is, you know, of course, a different twist on it, but it tends to be um, quite legalistic. And I just wondered if you've been able to observe uh, what the fruit of that is. Um, well, this, this much is my observation from the night that I debated Dr. Tuggy at, uh, and it was hosted at, at our home congregation, Fire. So there were, there were a few folks from our home congregation there. There were some general visitors from, uh, or from the general public, I should say, visitors from the general public, and then there were a, a bunch of of those that traveled to be with Dr. Tuggy came from other states. So you could say people of like heart and mind. Uh, one thing is the the smallness of of their group. The smallest of those who believe this cannot be exaggerated. You're, you're talking about a, a very, very small group and, and small following. Doesn't, that doesn't mean someone's wrong because they're small, but just to point, to point that out. Uh, the one thing that was universally manifest in those that I dialogued with was a lifelessness, was a lack of a vibrant living relationship with Jesus, oh, the man. lack of, of a real living fellowship with him. Uh, it it seemed, to, and I'm not trying to pin in a theological way. I'm just saying experientially, I was I was kind of shocked by that. And when I uh-huh. talked to some of my colleagues that interacted as well, they came to the 
same conclusion. Now, again, that may just been the people I spoke with or the particular setting after a debate, but uh, obviously without a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, you're not going to have that vibrant fellowship with God and the yeah. full experience yeah. of what he's done, nor will you experience the, the real fellowship of, of the spirit because you're, you're non Trinitarian. So you don't believe you can have fellowship with the spirit as, 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 as a specific person within the, the Godhead. Uh, for those who missed the debate, and this is one that came to us, we were approached to do it and, and asked to do it and said, yes, uh, just go to my website, Ask Dr. Brown, or our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown. So askdrbrown.org, and then just type in Tuggy in the search engine. Just type in Tuggy, T-U-G-G-Y, and that will get you to our debate. 866-34-TRUTH. And we have, we have a phone line. When a phone, someone hangs up for a split second, we have a phone line open if you're trying to get through. Uh, let's go to Matthew in Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Big, big fan of your work. Uh, I was listening to um, the conversation you had with Dr. White on limited atonement. Yes. And uh, I really appreciate it. I think a non-Calvinist Baptist uh, can bring up a lot of great points that I think a Reformed Baptist like Dr. White um, can't fully provide answers for. But um, I, I told your call screener, I wanted to ask about baby baptism. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a reformed pedo baptist Okay. And I think that's kind of a third way. Uh, just if you think of the covenant community, just as, as in the old Testament to the new as a, uh, a visible corporate body that includes the children of believers, the spouses of believers, mm-hmm. uh, you, you can, you can, um, you can account for the sort of passages that I think you validly bring up about, you know, uh, branches being grafted and then taken off again from the olive tree. Right, so, so yeah. So help, help me understand this, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, what does baptism do for a baby? It, um, it's a, it's a visible sign, a corporate sign that, that, that member, that is, that the child is a member of the covenant community just like circumcision. Okay, so what, what does it mean to be a member of the covenant community? Uh, to be uh, visibly uh, set apart, and um, like, like in 1 Corinthians 7, you know, holy, uh, the, the, the child is holy in the sense of being set apart from the nation. They're part of the priesthood nation of Christ, I guess. Got it. Okay, okay so I, I appreciate the 1 Corinthians 7 reference. That's helpful. Yeah about if you have an unsaved spouse, that the children are still holy, meaning sanctified, set apart through the believing spouse. But just to press this a a little further, so to be a member of the covenant community, in ancient Israel, you were a member of the covenant community, but that didn't make you necessarily in right standing with God. You could be a disobedient member or a member under judgment. Yet, as I understand it, to be a member of the church, of, of God's covenant community through the cross is to be saved, is to be born again, is to have eternal life. Yeah, salvifically, yeah, yeah. And that's where I think you and Dr. White, you both bring up good points, and I think you slightly, um, I mean, you're a lot smarter than me, but I <laughs> I tend to think maybe you guys are talking past each other because you're both Baptists. Uh, right, right, but, right. So I'm, but I'm, I'm yeah. yeah, and I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on your position, I'm just trying to of understand course. this. So baptism is an outward sign you're saying 
like circumcision, yeah. but it actually doesn't do anything in terms of the spiritual state of that baby? I mean, there would be a, a baptism of the Spirit in the, in a, um, not like, I mean, we could debate whether or not that's in a charismatic sense, but there's a, uh, you know, like a spiritual baptism in the sense of having the Holy Spirit. But when does that, that, does that happen salvation. with... All right, so, so but, water baptism is not salvation. Yeah, yeah. So water baptism... Not more than circumcision. Oh, okay. So water yeah. baptism is not much different than just parents dedicating their children to the Lord at a, at a public service, we, as is common in, in circles yeah. where we only baptize believers. So That's my understanding. Right. So then why wouldn't that person, though, when they come to faith and they're reading Scripture, repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized, why wouldn't they want to make a public confession and be, be baptized at that point? Well, if they were, um, if they were converting... I think um, that. No, no, no. no. My, my, my point is since oh, the water baptism did nothing spiritually for them at birth, but just identified them as part of the covenant community and set them apart for God, just like someone dedicating their child at a public service. Since we know yeah. that water baptism in conjunction with faith is a very, very important rite in the New Testament and is of spiritual significance and symbolizes our dying with the Messiah and rising from the dead. I would think that someone upon coming to faith, even having been baptized as a baby, would say, I want to be baptized now. Now that I understand it, and now that I'm dying with him and rising, I, I want to make that public profession through baptism. But well, tell you what, I, Ma Matthew, yeah, unfortunately, we're out of time. But I understand your point with regarding atonement, limited atonement, and people part of the community for whom sacrifices made but don't benefit from it. I understand the point you're making. We're just out of time here, but thank you. Thank you. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'll tell you, the uh, Zionist conspiracists and anti-Semites are coming out of the closet now, joining in with comments on Twitter, social media, our YouTube channel in response to my video refuting some utterly ludicrous, ridiculous claims by Rick Wiles of True News, where he speaks against Israel and the Jewish people. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let us go to Mark in Australia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Hey, Mark, um, I need you I'm to speak up right in the phone, all right? Yeah, just having a hard time hearing you, so... Uh, that's because you're a long way away in Australia. Uh, I can hear you a little better. Thank you. Can you hear me fine now? Uh, yes, better. Thanks. I'm actually grateful to be on. I'm grateful to be on your show. Thank you, sir. Um, I just have a few questions on on the gift of tongues. Mm -hmm. um, my first question is: um, so I believe in unknown tongues. I just yeah, I have a few questions on it that I hope you can clarify. Yeah. Is Jude one twenty only talking about the gift of tongues? No, where it says to build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that's only speaking about tongues any more than I believe in Ephesians 6, where Paul tells us to pray in the Spirit, that he's only speaking about tongues. Do I believe it includes tongues? Absolutely. Do I believe that's a very powerful way to pray in the Spirit and to build yourself up in your most holy faith? Absolutely. And I've practiced that for decades 
and it ties in with 1 Corinthians 14, where we are told that as we pray, we speak in, in tongues, we speak mysteries to God, and we build ourselves up. But I don't believe it exclusively refers to tongues. I believe it includes tongues. Um, what, what, what's the if, if speaking in tongues is for self-edification and praying with your understanding is also for um, self-edification, then what's the um, point of speaking in tongues? So when you're speaking in tongues, your mind does not understand what you're saying. Sometimes the, the, the Spirit will give you insight and interpretation but you are basically being used as a vessel for the spirit to commune with God and to pray. So what happens as you do that, it's like if you stand in the rain, you get wet. As, as you are part of this process of the spirit going to the father in prayer, that by being part of this process and giving yourself to it, you get built up. And as, as I pray in tongues, the Holy Spirit brings things to mind, etc. When I am interceding for others, even though I benefit from it, it is not primarily building me up. And, and again, Paul's contrasting prophecy, which and I speak that, I'm speaking for others. Does prophecy edify, edify me as well? Yes, but the main thing is it's spoken to someone else. So if, if I speak a prophetic word to someone, they're blessed and helped by it. I'm edified by it, but the primary thing is they're blessed and helped. If I speak a word in tongues, unless there's interpretation, they're not edified and helped, but I am. But praying with your understanding you can pray specifics with intercession. You can, you, I can be praying for God's hand to be on mark with Australia. So uh, in Australia, even though I'm blessed in praying, it's primarily for your benefit. Whereas tongues, because your understanding is not directly involved, you're communing with God and what you receive is for your benefit. Help, hence the emphasis on edifying yourself. Oh, yep, yeah, cool. Um, my, my other question on tongues was, is it actually an, uh, a language of angels? It and could be. also, is there any yeah. examples like in Acts, in the book of Acts, where an unknown tongue is, um, you know, used? Right. So, uh, is it the language of angels? Is that what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in the, the tongues, the languages of men and angels, is that what he means? Or is he just speaking figuratively? And there's an angelic language, an earthly language. Mm -hmm. He's not actually speaking the angelic language. We don't know. It could be that tongues is the language of angels. Many a time overseas, I've heard someone pray out, and I've had to listen carefully to figure out, okay, is, are they speaking in tongues? Because it's, 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 it's a language. Or are they speaking in their native language? Sometimes I've had to listen carefully to, to sort that out. But the only time in, in Acts at all, Mark, that it mentions uh, languages in terms of something that was understood by the people is Acts 2. Uh, elsewhere where tongues is mentioned explicitly, Acts 10 and Acts 19, it doesn't mention any message or understanding coming with it. And then when Paul speaks at length about it, 1 Corinthians 14, he explains that no one understands and that you need someone who has the gift of interpretation, not someone who knows the language, but someone who has the gift of interpretation. But uh, I have found praying in tongues to be very important. It has strengthened me in spirit to minister to others and out of prayer in tongues, I've received insight, spiritual leading to then pray with great specificity and clarity and force in English. And as I'm praying in tongues, my mind is in communion with God about many other things. Hey, thanks, sir, for calling from Down Under. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Jacob in Tennessee. Welcome to the Line of Fire. 
Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, so I was curious about Exodus 32. Mm-hmm. Um, golden calf thing always seemed really silly to me, why a calf? And uh, just further study, um, I, I'm wondering, do you think maybe that has any connection to the olive? And maybe they thought they were doing good, and, and that's what made the most sense to them with, to, to be to make a cow? Um, or am I just making connections that, that aren't there? And you said connected to the olive? Yeah, because we know it's uh, you know, the head of a bull. Um, no, 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 that, that yeah. somehow that that was now the direct connection with the nature of God. No, what it is is that you had in the ancient world deities that were worshipped as bulls and cows and things like that and different, different animals. You had the different gods in Egypt that had specific forms. Israel had been there all that period of time. So there'd be nothing to it whatsoever to, to, make, to make an image of an earthly thing, you know, some animal, uh, you know, it could have been a monkey god like you have in, in, in India, in, in Hinduism. You know, it, yeah. it could have been a god that was, you know, half, half this being and half that being. Uh, you know, there are many examples, you know, a bird god or something. This is just one of them. You know, Baal would, could be worshipped as, as a bull and, and he would have sex with a cow. And, you know, so is yeah. that, you know, uh, a bestiality, you know, all, all kinds of crazy things like that. But no, that's, that's the image. I mean, you've got the ancient Near East where you had idolatry. And you had gods depicted as physical beings, animals, and things like that. That's that's all it is. Nothing, nothing else to it. Um. Okay. And by the way, it doesn't it, say they made a golden oxen anyway. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. That is true. That's right. Breaks I, down I on that. Yeah, but forget, forget pictograph meanings. Once it became an alphabet, the pictographs no longer held and would not have been known by people or, or in a conscious way. And and to once you reduce things to 22 letters, then the pictographs no longer can, can work because you need more than 22 pictographs to compa- convey meaning. And when people, I mean, you'd be amazed, Jacob, at the cra- crazy stuff posted on YouTube trying to rebut my video about the Paleo-Hebrew script, etc. And, you know, you're not going to find a scholar on the planet who, who disagrees with what's there. It's just everybody knows the, the history of the Hebrew language and, and the ancient Near Eastern orthography and things like that. It's just, it's just ABC kind of stuff. Yeah, literally ABC. But people get divorced. Yeah, but look, if you look at this and it's the slayer of the chaos and the monster of the mother and the, it's like, oh, bo- it's bogus, bogus. And all this is people reading things into the Bible that aren't there. That's why I say it's so dangerous. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, Tim in Colorado, time is short. Please dive right in, sir. Sure. Um, I just thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to um, give out an analogy for the Trinity. I know that all analogies on the Trinity break down at some point, uh, but I was wondering what you thought of this analogy, which is uh, actually the new uh, way people do church these days, which is like multi-site campuses for church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to say yeah. you know one church, three campuses. Um, each campus has a congregation, has a pastor, etc. But uh, even so, it's only just one church. And uh, by extension, you could even just say that 
for the body of Christ in general. There's many different uh, places where we worship, but there is only one body. Uh, and so would people who would reject the Trinity also reject the fact that there's only one body of Christ? Yeah, so I, I, hey, listen, any analogy that we can use that helps people wrap their minds around something of, of such profound wonder as God's eternal triunity is, is worth using, right? So if, if I was to try to add to your argument, I would say that you have the founding congregation with the, the lead pastor, and then you have the satellite churches, each having a, a campus pastor, so they're all working for the same purpose, but you have kind of an originator and then others. The, the argument against your analogy would be that it, it militates against an eternal triunity because you first have the, the main campus and then you birth the other campuses out of that and they didn't exist before. So like with all analogies, it's going to fall short in a, in a certain way. But I, I appreciate you trying to get people to understand it in that way. And again, just the fact that God always existed, I know it's true. And my mind tells me it has to be true, but my mind also says, how, how does anyone always exist? Well, that's God. The same thing, how is God eternally triune? Well, that's, that's God, complex in his unity. And the day that we fully wrap our minds around everything having to do with God is, is the day we're probably trying to create him in our own image. I, I plan on worshiping and adoring and being in awe and wonder forever and ever. Hey, friends, it's a joy to be with you again. AskDrBrown.org. Do, e- do you get my emails? Sign up today if you don't. And we've got a great free ebook to send you. AskDrBrown.org.